In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Stacey Abrams Unmasked. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein with my AJC Political Insider colleague, Patricia Murphy. It's our promise in 2022 to be the podcast you can depend on for the most in-depth coverage and analysis of the race for governor and U.S. Senate. That is an easy place to start today. The photo that Stacey Abrams retweeted over the weekend with her maskless at an elementary school indicator has created one of the first big issues of this campaign. We told you about it on AJC.com, and it's been picked up nationally. And Abrams has even been scolded on places like ABC's The View, where she usually has a bit of a home field advantage. I'm a little bit shocked because Stacey Abrams, to me, is one of the most intelligent people in politics. Brilliant. And she kind of slipped up here. I think people really resent this idea of rules for thee, but not for, for rules, yeah. you know, for me, but yeah, not but for Yeah, but isn't it, it was an unforced yeah. error and it, of, of the worst sort. An unforced error, a slip up. Patricia, this was a major moment in the campaign cycle, um, and it always it really was kind of an unforced error because this was a this was a tweet that Stacey Abrams' campaign amplified, showing her at a Decatur City School um, after a reading event, wearing no masks, surrounded by a bunch of students with masks, and it was later deleted. But Republicans have used this to claim that she was a hypocrite that, that said exactly what we just heard the view say that rules for thee but not for me. Yes, I saw the picture and knew it was a problem for Stacey Abrams. And like you said, this was supposed to be just an easy breezy kids reading event. She was reading her own book, Stacey's Incredible Words, and um, tweeted it because I think they were very pleased with how that event went off. But first of all, as a parent with kids in elementary school and also somebody who's watching these campaigns and know that every campaign is looking for a slip up from the other, Abrams not wearing a mask in a Georgia school that has a mask mandate, despite the fact that she has not been a huge proponent of mask mandates, that's never been her position. She's been very quiet on this because she really was not a candidate during the, the heat of those controversies. It still just didn't play well. Um, first of all, uh, all the other kids were wearing masks. All the adults were wearing masks. Although she had just taken hers off for the photo, it was not a good photo. Anybody not close to that campaign could have told her that. Um, and then immediately Republicans pounced on that. And they weren't uh, really criticizing her for not wearing a mask, I will say, because a lot of Republicans don't wear masks. At GOP campaign events in Georgia, no masks. The issue for them was hypocrisy. You are pushing COVID um, restrictions, but you are not doing the one thing you should be doing here. So I agree it was definitely an unforced error, and Republicans are going to get a lot of mileage out of that. 
You know, Patricia, you, you hit the nail on the head because it's not that she was not wearing a mask. I mean, I was with Governor Kemp last week at a, an event in Forsyth County Schools where he was not wearing a mask and none of the other Republican officials around him were wearing a mask. And a lot of the students and reporters weren't wearing masks. So there, there's that. But it's, it's the issue of whether or not she was being hypocritical. And it's been hard to pin down whether or not she's actually been hypocritical because, as you mentioned, she hasn't been a candidate during the height of the pandemic when there was all these debates about coronavirus mask mandates and restrictions. And so we haven't been able to find a really good instance of her being on the record saying she supports school mask mandates or anything like that. As this all unfolded, we were trying to kind of pin her down on where she stands on this. And her campaign said that she follows, she wants to, she encourages schools to follow CDC guidelines and other safe mask recommendations. So she is not supportive of a school mask mandate, um, but yet at the same time, She's also been critical of Governor Kemp and other Republican officials for not being assertive enough, not being aggressive enough when it comes to taking steps to curb the spread of coronavirus. She's called him a governor of inaction even. Yeah. And this is not an issue that is below the radar. This same issue has um, practically gotten Boris Johnson kicked out of office in England for having one set of rules uh, for the country to live by and his own set of rules for his own people to live by. Um, California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom practically practically got recalled um, over having an outdoor dinner party. Technically, is that against CDC guidelines? No, but there he was while the state was locked down and he was having this huge dinner party at a fancy French restaurant. It just doesn't look consistent. It doesn't look like leadership. Um, Stacey Abrams is not in a position of leadership. She's not the governor, but she wants to be. And I think leading by example, especially among a group of small school children, um, many of whom probably were not vaccinated because they really were um, little kids. Um, It just didn't need to happen. I know she was wearing a mask during the event, um, for most of the event, except when she was speaking, but um, it is not a good choice at a time like this. Yeah, Patricia, and you're right. I mean, the the rundown, the timeline we got from the campaign basically follows this. And I I reviewed video that backed um, at least part of this up. Um, There's a group of students in a classroom. There's a podium where speakers came up to talk, and I guess she was reading her book from. And she walked up to that podium with a mask on her face, um, took it off. She said she was asked, or her campaign said she was asked to take it off so that the students watching by Zoom um, could could hear her because, you know, a mask can be obstructive. And in that sort of zone around her where she was delivering, reading her book, there was, there was no one within a few feet. So there, she was safely socially distanced from up at that podium. And then later on at some point, and she also posed for pictures with people around that podium, some pictures we saw she had masks on, some she didn't. Um, And later on, she sat down with the students and there was this, you know, you've seen the photo probably already. If you haven't, Georgia listeners, you will see it plenty because it will be in campaign ads all through November from Republicans, whether it be Governor Kemp or or David Perdue. Um, But, you know, I asked about why she felt comfortable, why she wanted to take the mask off around all those students who were all wearing masks and even the teacher in the backgrounds, teachers and faculty behind the students are all wearing masks. And she said she felt um, safe taking her mask off for a brief moment to take a picture so long as the people around her are taking those precautions. So she felt that she could take the mask off around those students with them wearing masks. Um, But again, it's the visual, you know, it's the visual of that image that we've already heard from both Cody Hall, Kemp's spokesman, and Austin Chambers, uh, one of David Perdue's top advisors, 
who have both promised this ad, this picture will, will feature prominently throughout the rest of the campaign. Yeah, uh, the Abrams campaign came back just white hot on um, their response to Republicans and said that this was um, totally politicized, that she was there for a Black History Month event to read to school children, and they were politicizing the issue. Um, the issue is political. I mean, it has been politicized. I think the horses out of that barn. Um, of course, they're being political. Of course, they're politicizing it. Um, and uh, again, Republicans in the state, it's very hit or miss. If you're going to get Republicans who are for masks, against masks, they're pretty uniformly against mask mandates. There's a lot of hypocrisy to go around to criticize uh, somebody for not wearing a mask. Um, but uh, the fact remains, it became this big, big issue and a big controversy that really didn't need to happen. Um, I think even if they had come back and said, this was a brief misstep, it won't happen again. I almost feel like that would have put it to bed. Um, but that might just be giving everybody too much credit in the political world for for uh, letting people move on from a from a mistake. You know, and it was a rare misstep in the sense, too, that she is, Stacey Abrams has been enjoying this Republican infighting, right? She's been able to try to rally her own base, raise a lot of money. She raised more than $9 million in the two months since she got into the contest. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But she's been able to focus on fundraising, a pretty centrist message, right? I mean, she's not leaning to the left as much as she did in the 2018 campaign. She's talking about expanding Medicaid, boosting school funding, promoting public health, things like that, that that have a wide range of a broad spectrum of support. Um, she's not talking about taking the faces off Stone Mountain or, or some of the issues that, that she, you know, she helped galvanize, she helped uh, push in her 2018 campaign at this stage in the race. But this kind of shifted the debate away, at least for a day or two, uh, shifted the focus back to her and away from the two Republicans, David Perdue and Brian Kemp, who had been bitterly warring with each other. And even if it was a brief respite, it still was a chance for Republicans to to kind of unite and say, okay, you know, let's remember who our target is. Yeah, it also gives you a window into the parallel um, kind of road not taken for Republicans. What if there was not this big GOP primary happening that is sucking up so much of the oxygen and so much of the attention with those two Republicans just battling each other? And we cover a lot of that. What if it was already just Kemp and Abrams at this point? I think we'd be having a really different conversation on a daily basis for sure. Um, and I heard from a bunch of Abrams supporters who said, what mistake? There's no mistake here. Let, you know, look at the big picture. Um, this is fine. They were wearing masks. Uh, there's there's nothing to see here. This is political. Um, but I did also hear from some Abrams supporters who said, you know, I'm just a little disappointed right now. You know, are they going to vote for Brian Kemp? No. Um, but it's just a moment that really didn't have to happen. I will read you a, a message I got from a very, very high ranking Democratic official who is also a big Stacey Abrams supporter. He said, I've talked to a bunch of Democratic Party insiders, and none of them will even admit that Abrams made a political mistake in posting that dumb picture. It's pathetic, but they don't realize schools are the whole game this election. The GOP sees the crack and is going for it. And, you know, we saw that in Virginia. Obviously, the Republican Party saw that that schools and education is issues were uniquely energizing to voters, especially those sort of on the middle of the road. And we're seeing that now. I mean, if you're if 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 our listeners haven't picked up on that, they will soon because some of the biggest debates take away the gun 
fight because there will be the constitutional carry permitless carry bill. Aside from that, some of the biggest legislative agenda items this session involve schools, um, CRT bans, even though critical race theory isn't being taught, Uh, bans on obscene books uh, in, in Georgia, parental bill of rights, vouchers. You know, you're seeing it up and down the spectrum and Governor Kemp is leaning right into it. And one one bill that we're only starting to see right now is a restrictions on trans, certain transgender athletes from from competing in high school sports. So all of this plays into school cultural war issues. That's such a great point. And um, even I, when I first saw the picture of Abrams, I really reacted as a mom um, who is not allowed into the school building where my kids go to school. There are just restrictions on parents. There are restrictions. Masks are required. Um, It's the first thing I saw. And then I said, wow, Republicans are really going to go bananas on this one. Um, But every parent in the state has run a homeschool out of their home within the last two years. I think parents feel particularly engaged, in some cases enraged, depending on which parents you're talking to, um, about schools. Um, They feel like they have a unique window into it. They have a a window um, into the curriculum that they had never had before. And so I think that is part of what has put schools on the front and center of this um, political cycle. Also, um, because of the race in Virginia, and uh, because we're at this, um, this really, it feels like a really historic sort of pivot point in terms of social justice issues, it's all combining in schools. And all of those issues are not just new, they're very emotional, and people are incredibly engaged on them because they've been um, sort of their own kids' teachers for quite some time. And so uh, there are a lot of um, issues that are really have exploded in a way that I just don't think they would have um, in the past uh, without COVID. Um, and now put COVID in there, um, put social justice issues in there, and you've got the 2020 race in all its forms. That is such a good point that that all of us with students right now, with all of us parents, with school-age children, we've all been homeschool teachers, and all of us are dreading that email or that call or that decision about going back to virtual schools because a, you know, it's not good for us as parents. <laughs> it's been good for our work-life balance, but it's not good for our students. I mean, you know, we, we've had to make a lot of tough decisions with our own family. Um, uh, with with a young, you know, our fifth grader was doing better when it came to virtual schools, but our second grader, eh, not so much. So we've had to make tough decisions. Every family has, and that is why this is so galvanizing. And I, and I think you're right. That is why we're seeing uh, more. Uh, GOP proposals and the transgender athletes, yeah, doesn't that doesn't play into it. But the parental bill of rights and the issues about giving parents more of a say in their school districts, Patricia, that that plays directly into that that entire theme. I think that's completely right. Uh, the transgender issue, I think, is um, the piece that is a social issue um, that as now really infused schools um, in on in rare instances, but it has just blown up in the headlines. I feel like we tend to read more about it outside of Georgia. Um, there has been a conversation, even a debate um, inside the Georgia General Assembly um, this week about transgender sports, and very few people could even pinpoint examples of uh, transgender sports controversies here in the state. But that I do feel like is sort of a standalone issue. But the question, especially of the Parents' Bill of Rights, I think parents are saying, wait a minute, now I know everything 
Now I know everything and I want to keep knowing everything. I think there's a higher expectation for transparency. Um, and there is also a higher expectation, I think, of control in some cases that I don't know if parents would have had in the past. Um, and, uh, add that to an election season. And then I think you've got a real stew of um, of potentially divisive conversations ahead for this General Assembly um, and for the state really um, heading into the, into the campaign season. As a parent, I can say I do not want to know everything. I have access to my daughter's, my fifth grade daughter's text chains. I don't understand any of them. Uh, <laughs> but... But that's beside the point. We mentioned a, uh, we're in a brief respite. We had a brief respite of Republican on Republican fighting. Well, Republican on Republican fighting is back on in a major way. We'll talk about that when we come back from break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and I'm here with political insider, columnist, Patricia Murphy. Reminder, go to subscribe.ajc.com backslash podcast, and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. It's an amazing deal. That's subscribe.ajc. What a bargain. Subscribe.ajc.com. Now, as we promised, the Republican side of the gubernatorial race just got a little lighter with Vernon Jones deciding to back out nine months after he opened his campaign. Look, Georgians, I'm one of you. I've got God in my heart. I've got farming in my blood. I have military in my family. I have small businesses on my mind. And just in case you didn't know, I'm a black Republican. Now, Patricia, just to be clear, Vernon Jones had zero shot at winning the governor's race. Not at all. Um, his only bet was trying to be the pro-Trump Republican. But when Donald Trump endorsed David Perdue, the former U.S. senator, instead, that made his already very slim chances of beating Governor Brian Kemp in a primary vanished entirely. He had zero shot. But this is important. You know, a lot of people were kind of giving us flack on Twitter or social media saying, why is this a major deal? It is a major deal. And and one of the reasons why is he still had enough support, even if it was high single digits in some of these polls, that's enough support to depro- to weaken David Perdue and it's enough support to potentially drive this race into a June runoff that I don't think any voters want to see. So both those in both those instances, it's a major deal. But also one third one, now he's entering an open U.S. House race. He's running for the 10th district. He might even have Donald Trump support. Um, that could shake up 
an entirely different contest and cause a domino effect uh, that, could, that could affect other down ticket races. So you've got this pro-Trump slate that might be growing. You've got a, and you've got a clearer shot for David Perdue to take on Brian Kemp and try to unify the pro-Trump loyalist base. So some major shakeups in uh, about a month or a couple of weeks before qualifying in this Georgia governor's race. That's exactly right. This was a big deal. And I don't care what Twitter says about that. Um, because <laughs> Vernon Jones was drawing about eight, nine, ten percent in recent polls of that GOP governor's race. And that is more than enough to keep um probably both uh gentlemen of the other gentlemen um under fifty percent. Maybe not for Brian Kemp. I don't know that they are um eating off of the same tree with uh, with those particular two campaigns. Um, but certainly it would keep uh David Perdue out of striking reach um, from Brian Kemp. So in order for Donald Trump's uh, preferred chosen candidate, David Perdue, to even have a shot at winning against Brian Kemp, um, they really needed Vernon Jones out of that race because those are assumed to be all Donald Trump voters. And the next assumption is that all of those voters will go to David Perdue. I don't know that that's the case, uh, but they really needed that. The pro-Trump group really needed Vernon Jones to get out of that GOP race, even to give David Perdue a shot at winning. Um, also, if that GOP primary goes to a June runoff, every minute is another minute where it is an intense family feud between Republicans when what they really mm -hmm. need to do is reorganize, uh, unify quickly, and then move on to um, starting to really uh, get serious about defeating Stacey Abrams. Um, so those are those were two dynamics at play that were really looming over that GOP primary. And if the real goal among the Trump crowd is to defeat Brian Kemp, um, it was just not going to happen. It didn't look like it was going to happen um, with Vernon Jones. He was just a, more of a spoiler than anything else. Um, and then for Jones now to move over to that 10th district race, is so fascinating because there is a kind of a clump of uh, candidates who look like viable candidates, all vying to be that pro-Trump lane dominant candidate because um, the 10th district, while it's not as conservative as the 9th or the 14th, it is still quite conservative. And that GOP primary electorate is super conservative. So you've got Mike Collins, who's raised about a million dollars. You've got Timothy Barr, who's a state representative, um, and Patrick Witt, who is a, <laughs> a former member of the Trump legal team, although he is not a member of any bar that I'm aware of, um, not a practicing mm -hmm. lawyer. Um, but they're all really fighting it out to be Donald Trump's preferred candidate. Now, here comes a favorite of Donald Trump. We don't know if he's going to be uh, getting the actual endorsement for Donald Trump, but I will say at every... Trump campaign event that we covered over the last year, two years, three years, Vernon Jones always got the second most applause lines after Donald Trump. He was just a huge figure, kind of a celebrity um, uh, attention monger, basically. Uh, everybody at these Trump rallies looks for Vernon Jones, wants their pictures with Vernon Jones, lined up to get autographs and selfies with Vernon Jones. He's a celebrity in that crowd. And so him getting into that 10th district race, I think really is going to shake it up. Yeah, he's a crowd pleaser and he's a crowd surfer because that was the other thing he liked to do <laughs> with those, and those, we've seen those it with rallies. Our own he would he would crowd surf on the on the uh, the outstretched arms of thousands of Trump supporters. It was a bizarre scene, and, and it's even more bizarre knowing his backstory because Vernon Jones is a, was for the 
bulk of his political career a liberal Democrat. He ran for U.S. Senate against Johnny Isaacson. He ran for U.S. House and lost. He ran for DeKalb Sheriff and lost. He was a two-term DeKalb chief executive, DeKalb County chief executive. And of course, we don't need to remind our listeners, DeKalb is the biggest Democratic stronghold, the most important Democratic stronghold in the state of Georgia. And he was elected as a Democratic member of the state legislature. And as a Democratic member of the state legislature, he carved out a very liberal voting record, including voting against the anti-abortion heartbeat bill that Governor Kemp signed into law. So that's not even talking about his past controversies and his personal life that we can get into later, but his political life, he has carved out a very, very liberal record um, and a very controversial record in terms of issues that he supported and, and made a part of his agenda. And about early 2020, we saw this transformation. I mean, we, we brought you the story of him endorsing Trump as a Democrat. And then about a year later, he formally flipped parties. So that's why it's so surreal to me seeing Republicans sort of seeing David Perdue, right? A, 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 a elected, formerly elected U.S. Senator, Republican, conservative, um, embrace Vernon Jones, who basically a year ago was, was still a Democrat and two years ago was still a, a liberal Democrat in, in terms of his voting record. It, it, it speaks to me of the power, a potential power of Trump uh, in Georgia, his staying power, because if, if Donald Trump can make Vernon Jones still a credible candidate in the rural 10th district, then I don't know, I don't know what, the, what a better test of his influence could be. That's so true. And um, But if you think about uh, Donald Trump's path to the presidency, the most recent lifelong Democrat who he uh, got on the ticket and won was himself. Donald Trump was a yeah. Democrat until he ran for president as a Republican. And so um, party affiliation, um, policy positions, past votes, uh, consistency on issues is not and has not been a factor with the Donald Trump crowd. It, Donald Trump has been the factor with the Donald Trump crowd. Um, there are a lot of through lines uh, that unite uh, the people who also support Donald Trump, but it's really not about, were you a member of the GOP in 1982? Did I see you at that meeting? I don't think so. You know, This is all about Donald Trump um, for the Donald Trump supporters. And so uh, Vernon Jones coming in as a recent Democrat uh, is only going to be the second recent Democrat who they would have supported in the first place. Well, now let's shift gears to the U.S. Senate race, where Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock is out with his first ad, and it's a big buy. What I want the people of Georgia to know is that I see you. I hear you. I am you. I understand the work that I was sent to the Senate to do, and that's what I intend to keep doing for Georgia. You know, Patricia, he is trying to connect with voters. We both watched his town hall a few days ago in Decatur, where one of his kind of telling lines was, hey, guys, I also go to the grocery store. I also buy milk. I understand what you're facing with inflation. He's trying to connect with voters on a, on a kind of a, a personal level. Um, you, you don't hear in this ad any talk about liberals or conservatives or, or Republicans or Democrats. Um, he, he's trying to just say, I'm one of you. Yeah, and that is totally consistent with the campaign that he ran in 2020. Um, we all remember the very famous ads that he put up um, of him uh, with a puppy and saying, you're going to hear a lot of Alvin. terrible things about me. Yes, the dog who actually is Greg's neighbor. <laughs> 
dog lived Greg lives across Was. the street from that dog okay he moved um so uh you know he painted a very unifying picture and because he did not have a democratic primary um to speak of um he was able to uh, just continue that persona. And while the Republicans were beating themselves up and literally just going after each other day after day to get uh, sort of the the bulk of Republican voters uh, onto their side, Raphael Warnock was able to just uh, uh, paint a very positive picture. His ads were positive. I heard from people at Trump events who were like, you know who? like I feel I'm like that Raphael Warnock guy. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. really? You know? So um and that worked for him so well in 2020. Obviously the strategy is to start off on that foot again here in 2022. Um and I think I think it's smart. He does not have he again has uh, Republicans fighting amongst themselves. He doesn't have to be um running to the left, um making the case to liberals that uh that he's their guy. Um I think he also has done the work with progressives as a senator. I think uh, uh, progressives are very happy with him. And the space that he really does need uh, probably to make up some room is is in the center. Um, we saw his uh, polling that came out recently. Um, it looks like he might have a little bit of work to do uh, to, to strengthen his candidacy um, among independents. Um, and uh, I think an ad like this is, is the right way to go. He's also got a ton of money. And uh, before we sat down to do this podcast, I saw his ad twice on Atlanta TV. So he's already up and spending wow. a lot of money and an expensive market um, in February. So that's what uh, that's what we know about his budget right now. You know, from what I understand, he put $750,000 behind this ad in the first buy, and he's got $23 million in his account. So I think he can afford it. But that just shows you what happens when you have this much money, uh, when you have the ability, the financial ability, because he is a, uh, a bona fide fundraising dynamo, him and Stacey Abrams. Uh, we have a story out on AJC.com. Uh, that explores deeper into the fundraising numbers of this latest cycle because Democrats have far outraised Republicans in the top races for governor and for Senate. We mentioned how Stacey Abrams raised more than $9 million um, in her race in over two months. Brian Kemp raised about $7 million over six months. David Perdue only raised $1 million. So it shows you Stacey Abrams is far outpacing the Republicans in their side of the race. And then on the Senate side, um, and this is Herschel Walker's no slouch, right? Her- Herschel Walker raised more than $5 million the last quarter. Um, that was a record. That was the highest number of any Republican Senate challenger, non-incumbent Senate challenger in the nation. So Herschel Walker had a great fundraising quarter. It was just that Raphael Warnock had an even better one. He more than almost doubled. He raised about nine, more than $9 million, um, about $9.8 million over the last three months. So his numbers are just astounding. And it shows you how formidable Democrats are going to be, even if the national climate is working against them. That's a great point. Um, also, just because of the nature of his day job, uh, Raphael Warnock can't be in the state campaigning. He can't be in the state during the week. He can't be driving around the state um, and really hitting these campaign stops the way that we know that all of these candidates are. Um, Herschel Walker, we understand, is getting all around the state, um, able to get to Brunswick, able to get up to North Georgia. We know that he's been over in Athens several times. Uh, Warnock can't do that, so he does need to use uh, some of this money to get his uh, presence in the state because he can't do it himself. You're exactly right. Um, and it speaks to the powers of incumbencies, but also the pitfalls, because we've only seen 
Senator Warnock at one campaign, really, it wasn't even a campaign event, but one major event this year so far, and that was that town hall meeting that was packed uh, and got a lot of media coverage, but he is less able to go make the rounds in the state. That will change as uh, election year, uh, election gets closer and the Senate has a reduced schedule because a lot of other senators are also in the same position. He is Republican and Democrat, and they want to get out there and make the rounds with voters. Well, we love hearing from our listeners and our readers and our subscribers. And one of our favorite segments of the show is the mailbag. So we encourage you to email us, send us tweets, send us social media messages, um, contact us in some way to offer your questions because we got a great one this week from Delilah Thompson of Osilla. And it's a good one. And it's a simple one. How do you guys do the jolt? (laughs) Which is a question (laughs) I ask myself a lot. Um, especially after this morning's item, which might have been my one of my probably my favorite ever, because we uncovered how a state lawmaker basically flipped the birdie <laughs> at, <laughs> at the entire Georgia House and amazing. In, in his composite picture. Um, it took like sort of an eagle-eyed tipster uh, who noticed that this state lawmaker Dominic Laricia was holding with his hands clasped, but his middle finger was. Uh, strategically positioned out in a, he says it's not an FU. He acknowledged he, he, he did flip the birdie. He said it wasn't meant to be an FU to the chamber. Uh, instead, it was meant to be him, you know, goofing off. Uh, either way, it reminds us that lawmakers are just like us. Uh, they, they could be idiots too. <laughs> they could be childish <laughs> as well. But also was a, that, I guess that will segue into how we do the jolt. In that case, that was a, uh, a tip that we got. I made some phone calls. I called the lawmaker, wrote the item up probably last night at 11 because I was out um, with some friends, so I didn't get back till late. Um, and then I kind of worked on it between 11 and maybe 11.45, added some other items. Tia also works around that same time frame. Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent. And then Patricia, that's when you come in. That's when I come in. Uh Greg got that tip. He called me last night. I was at the grocery store and he said, what do you think about this as a, as a jolt lead? I said, yes, that's awesome. So uh, usually the jolt lead is a um, something we talk about uh, maybe usually the night before so that we know we've got something good. Um, we agree on that. And then Greg and Tia do their items. So they are always loading up kind of their best scoops. And it's always something you're really not going to see anywhere else, which is one of my favorite things about the jolt. And then I get up usually about 3.30 in the morning because that's when I have a quiet house and I don't have people asking me for pancakes. (laughs) So I'll get up um, very early. I will see what Greg and Tia have put in there. Um, Then I'll add my own reporting. And uh, usually I've got um, quite a bit from the state house. If the state house is in session, um, I like to keep an eye on also the local papers all around Georgia. We get lots of great content um, where we like to send our readers to the local papers around Georgia because they're um, doing a lot of coverage of their own local leaders. And um, I think Atlantans really benefit from that as well. And uh, then I will put it all together, um, give it a strong edit because I don't like typos. And I hear from readers immediately if there's a typo yes, in the jolt. Um, and then um, we like to put it up. I usually like to get it up between 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning so that when our readers are also getting up between 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning, they have their morning jolt right there with them to get ready for the day. And then Greg and I in the Capitol will hear from lawmakers who have just read it. <laughs> so we usually, uh, that's usually part of the conversation uh, during the day. 
And and we just mentioned the flipping off, flipping the birdie. As we're taping this podcast, we are also hearing that that the lawmaker who flipped the birdie will be giving a morning order this morning before the entire Georgia House. So sometimes our jolt uh, coverage leads to sweeping policy changes and things like that. And other times it just leads to an embarrassing speech from me, from a state lawmaker. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and a reminder that actions have consequences. But I I, bo- I think from his quotes today, we know it was not really meant in any uh, – no, yeah. no harm, no foul, I think, from Representative Durkia. <laughs> My sensibilities are not shocked. Uh, Please read our coverage and subscribe to AJC.com. We will see you again on Friday. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.